everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. This is not Tim. This is Brian Ross Kelly, because Tim is off this week. We had some uh, scheduling coordination issues, and uh, so I'm down here in Southern California with Brian because we were just driving the Lexus RZ450E. E. Yes. E. E stands for electric. It does. It also stands for E. Um, but we can't tell you how it drives yet. That our lips are sealed until when? March thirteenth. March thirteenth. Seven a.m. Eastern. There we go. So uh, be sure and head over to YouTube, Facebook, uh, your favorite TikTok, etc., to get all the details mm -hmm. of the first ever Lexus battery electric vehicle. And aside from the driving dynamics, something we can talk about that is interesting about it is the fact that we have a steer-by-wire steering wheel that mm -hmm. is similar mm -hmm. to the Tesla Yoke. Now I don't know. If can we get similar in looks? Similar we can't. Looks. We can't talk about how it we feels can't to talk drive. About how it feels, but we will say it's different. It is oh. different, and the I think the key thing for people to understand. Uh, we go over this a bit more in the video that's going to be coming out on it, but it it obviously from the thirty thousand foot perspective looks like Lexus copied Tesla, uh, obviously. But on a fundamental level, level it is a very different system because with the Tesla, they literally changed nothing between the driver and the wheels on the road, other than the shape of the steering wheel. And on the Lexus, they changed everything between you and the wheels. Even the dashboard. Yes. Even the, the dashboard. Um, and so it doesn't. It's not just missing the top half. It's a complete steer by wire system with an infinitely variable ratio. Tiny turns, lock to lock. It is definitely a, a really intriguing thing. Uh, whether or not people will be interested, I don't know. You were trying to figure that out. Who is the buyer for something that yeah. radically different? We don't know. Yeah, and uh, of course, Lexus says they're trying to attract a younger customer, mm -hmm. that EV buyers tend to be younger than the regular Lexus customer. So maybe this will help bring some more people into the Lexus showroom. Uh, I think the price tag also could help because it's mm -hmm. going to be relatively inexpensive. Uh, starting what under sixty thousand? Just a hair under sixty, and then just a hair over sixty-six all in, I think, mm -hmm. or sixty-seven potentially. We'll see. Yep. They haven't given us official pricing on that yoke steering wheel, which Correct. will be apparently an additional option. Um, but it will only be available on the top trim, the luxury trim. So if you want it, you got to pay all the money. Another thing you have to get the luxury trim in order to achieve getting is the two-tone paint yes. colors on the outside, which. $1,200 option. $1,200 option, but you warmed up to it throughout the day. You didn't like I it at first. I did warm up to it a bit. Uh, I think it's going to depend on the color. It does, yeah. yeah. Would you get a white one with the black stripe? I don't know, because with the, with the Toyota Crown, which is what we were comparing it to mm -hmm. all day, I actually like the white and black panda look on the Crown. I know most people don't. <laughs> I don't know if it would work on this. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'd have to see it, and we weren't able to sample it. All they had were sort of a jewel tone collection yeah. out there. We didn't get to see like the red and black, yeah. etc. But it is less controversial, I think, because the stripe in the crown starts basically at the air dam up front right. and goes all the way to the tailpipes. It's yes. a complete wraparound stripe down the middle. This is basically the upper section of the body, so windows, roof, and hood, and grill is black. Um, but the hatch is body colored, so it's, it jibes a little bit better for me. Right, right. And I mean, I think the only colors we saw that were kind of light was like a light-ish blue mm -hmm. with the black. The car we were, did our video on was like a gray with the black, so it was harder to tell that it had yeah. it at all. So it will depend on the color. And the, the other thing is, unlike 
the Genesis GV60 or possibly the GV70, there aren't really any flashy colors available for this That's car. True. Yeah. So it's going to be hard to really gain, really see that two tone on a lot of the options mm-hmm. they're giving you. So yeah, it is interesting. We we want to attract a younger customer with the steer by wire, but then we're going fairly conservative with the color profile. The pricing, I think, is pretty spot on based on the range figures, etc. It is the shortest range in this segment that I can think of. Unless uh, it's a Jaguar I-Pace? The I-Pace, yeah. yeah, the I-Pace the is a bit more. Sure, yeah. It's in the 200s. There's a lot of options, honestly, yeah. in the 200s. The Genesis models are in the 200s. Mm-hmm. The Volvo's in the 200s. But the others have received some uh, performance and, and fuel efficiency updates to bring them above the 220 mark. Right. And the top end version of this is going to be under 200 miles of range. Yeah, and you know, people ask the, the Lexus folks about, what the, well, why is there not an F-Sport version of this? And there will not be an F-Sport version at launch. Of course, they can't talk about future products. There are rumors that there might be a lesser version, not a more high-performance version. We yeah. don't know any of that for sure. It's just we're getting this one all-wheel drive Direct 4 version, 450E for now, and we'll see if they, you know, find the demand for more options. But I wouldn't mm-hmm. say they can't go with less range. Whatever they do, they need to at least do better than the range figures that they currently offer because yeah. all the comments we're receiving are like, ooh, it's not great. But yeah. even that new Genesis G7, uh, the electrified GV70, its top rating is 238, I believe. Mm-hmm. 238 miles. The top rating for this is what, around 220 or so? 220, yeah. It does appear that the Genesis has a bigger battery pack. And this is kind of a, a, a point that some people have been discussing and arguing over. But it appears, Lexus won't give us any official amount numbers here, but it appears that this battery pack is only 64 to 65 kilowatt hours usable. Right. So it is a relatively small battery. Um, primarily because Lexus is reserving a lot for battery degradation concerns. So the more of the battery you use, the faster the battery will degrade. By capping that amount artificially, you can really improve battery life and battery longevity. Um, That is different than Tesla's approach, which they really allow you to use the entire battery, but then it comes with warnings that you shouldn't regularly charge it over 80%. So this is kind of a, a weird twist, like, you know, you have a... Uh, 250 mile or t- or 300 mile rated Tesla, but if you're only supposed to charge the battery to 80 percent, you don't really have that until you need that road trip range. With this, it is always walled off. You can only ever charge it up to that 64 to 65 kilowatt hour mark, um, and it does appear that there's more usable capacity in the Genesis batteries. So, a little bit of an interesting thing there. So we'll have to see how it, how it does for Lexus. They're definitely limiting production. It's about mm-hmm. 5,000 units, actually 4,900 units for the first model year. Uh, a couple, I think China, they said it's getting a little bit more than us. Japan's yeah. getting some, but only, what, twenty five or 30,000 total for the whole world, I think, for the first year right. or two. So, you know, they're Seems being like cautious. most of them, China's going to get most China of them. China and the domestic market a bit. Because yes, yes. Europe's only going to get about 5,000 as well. Yeah, so. Yeah, so definitely a slow roll here at the, uh, at the Lexus EV factory. Absolutely. In other news, let's move on to a non-EV related topic. This is the 2024 Ford Mustang. Pricing was released just now today. And there is a little bit of a price hike compared to the Mm -hmm. previous generation, even though we know it's not a full, completely full redesign, but it is a pretty heavy, uh, you know, what they're calling a new generation, but- A refresh of design. Yeah, (laughs) you know, like a a half redesign, but Mm -hmm. kind of a redesign. Ford does this a lot, F-150 Mustang, they've done it many times in in the past, but, I'm okay with that because I mean it's like the the Mustang is not a hot seller. It's not a not a Camry kind of level volume, 
And it's, uh, I think it's important for Ford's image and obviously for Mustang lovers that it still exists. So the most logical thing to do is to continue massaging it as long as possible so that way they can afford to keep it around. Right. And keep it affordable, I think, is the big thing. So what is what do we know about the pricing here? So we know, of course, that the EcoBoost versions of the Mustang are not going to be offered with a manual. Only the GT, the V8, is going to be offered with a manual. And uh, with that said, the Fastback Coupe is going to start at $30,920. Um, now mm. there's a $1,595 mm. $1, destination fee, so that brings it actually up to $32,515. And that is what three to four thousand dollars more than last year. I think it started around twenty-seven thousand or so before. Mm, yeah, so a decent, decent increase. Um, that includes destination. You said thirty-two five. Thirty-two five. Okay, okay. Includes the de destination. Um, there's another trim above that that boosts actually goes six thousand dollars more. The premium trim is six thousand more than that. Basically, roughly thirty-eight thousand forty dollars. And then if you want to get into the convertible, with which does not have a base trim, the convertible only comes as premium or GT or, um, well, actually, I don't, there's not going to be a dark horse convertible. So yeah. if you want a convertible, mm -hmm. it's premium only. The convertible starts at 43,540 with destination. So 43,004 a convertible Mustang. You know, I think I'm actually okay with the pricing because a quick Google here, the Toyota 86, which is the natural competition, I would say, or as close as you could get to it, really, uh, outside of the Camaro is 29005 after destination. So the Mustang is only $3,000 more. You get a much more usable backseat, a bigger trunk, way more way power, more, yeah. an actually good transmission. The mm -hmm. manual in the BZ or uh, whatever we're calling this thing. 86. We're not a BRZ. BRZ. It's a 86. There we go. 86. Um, is the manual's okay, but the automatic, not great. Um, and the 10 speed is fantastic in the Mustang. Um, I think it's also well priced against the Camaro and, of course, the Dodge Challenger, which is going away, supposedly. Yeah. We're getting another last call Challenger. Yeah. Yet another. Now, it looks like if you want to get into a GT, the base GT trim starts at 43090 So you mm -hmm. can get a coupe GT for the same price, basically, as a premium-trimmed EcoBoost convertible Mustang. Mm. Um, now, that's... I don't know which one I would go with. I think I want the convertible, but yeah. I also kind of want the power of the V8. That's a tough one. Yeah. Convertibles are such a limited market in America. Yeah. It's funny. It's America has so many places where the weather would work for a convertible, yet as percentage of sales, convertibles are far more popular <laughs> in countries with bad weather. Like I'm shocked by the number of convertibles that are sold in England. It is mm. hilarious. <laughs> um, I guess that's that that you know the the few days a year where you want to drive the convertible, you must absolutely have yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and even in California, you know, where the weather is great most of the time, uh, there are not that many convertibles outside of the Hertz dealer lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, there is a premium GT trim that is 47610 with destination. And then there's a premium convertible trim. So, again, there is no mm -hmm. base convertible. If you want a GT, it's going to be the premium version. If you want even the EcoBoost, it's, it's going to be a premium only ordeal for the convertible. And that costs 53110 and if I look at this pricing here, it's not a bad uh, upgrade. It's $36,445 up to $41,945 to have the top hacked off. I think that's not a bad, not a bad deal. Yeah. yeah, especially since the interior has been drastically changed in this generation. It is much nicer than the previous version. Uh, a lot of the shapes are very similar. Obviously, the dashboard changed a great deal with the new two-screen setup, which mm -hmm. has been very controversial. Yeah. I think it looks good. Um, very controversial, though, in some circles. Uh, but the important thing for me is that a lot of the plastics around the interior and the center console and the doors, even though the shapes are similar, the materials are much improved versus the last model. They really pulled some of the, the pages out of the playbook for the Mach-E. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the one thing I'm not really clear on is the fact that with the GT trims, the manual transmission is standard, but it's not. I'm not clear how much more the 10 speed is. Mm, interesting when you question. Get the GT. Yeah. I'm, I'm not seeing that. Let's hope it's a no cost option, option, but we will probably know more soon. We will know more soon. And finally, to top it off, the Dark Horse, which again, coupe only, that one starts at 59565 which is actually, I think, less than I was expecting. Yeah, that's not bad. I think that's not bad. And you can, of course, bet that they're going to be Cobras and, you know, and GT, GTs and, and all of those are coming at some point later. And, you know, factory superchargers, aftermarket superchargers, all the kind of chargers you want. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting stuff there. Now, Mercedes-Benz has revealed interior photos of the next generation E-Class. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because... It looks like what they've done, not only have they added some interesting gimmicks to it, but they've combined the hyperscreen from the EQS with the existing dashboard from the C-Class and the S-Class with the actual separated LCD instrument cluster from the hyperscreen section. So it's like mm-hmm. the best of both instead of the EQS, which is yeah. the entire flat panel, there's actually a separate cluster. And the screen is definitely smaller, but you do have the passenger screen over there on the right because it's part hyperscreen. Yeah, and I'm really interested in see what that passenger screen is like because it looks like this system is going to be far better integrated with apps than before. Mm-hmm. Previous versions of Mercedes infotainment system have been very convoluted in their 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 UI layout. Um, this appears to have been greatly simplified, thank goodness. Um, it's going to feature downloadable apps via an app store. So there's going to be a bunch of different things, TikTok, uh, Angry mm-hmm. Birds, apparently things like yep. that. And I'm going to be intrigued to see if CarPlay will function on the other screen. We don't have any word about that, but CarPlay currently supports up to three screens. So theoretically, you can not just have uh, the navigation map in the instrument cluster and the navigation map in the center, but you could also be you know, exploring your tunes on the other screen, uh, which is kind of what iDrive 8 does. So iDrive 8 is the first implementation of a multi-screen CarPlay setup, so it allows you to do navigation in front of you while you do your tunes in the center console. I'd be really intrigued to see whether you could do that or maybe Android Auto on one side, CarPlay on the other at the same time. That would be really cool, too. Uh, lots of details still left to come, though. The most intriguing thing, though, to me is the fact that there is a selfie camera built into the mm-hmm. dashboard, which is which allows you to do TikTok videos and do WebEx and Zoom video streaming. Mm-hmm. So you could do a... We could actually we could do this, a podcast. We could do this podcast. In an EQE. The, no, the E-class. Sorry, E-class. E-class. The EQE actually has hyperscreen. This is, again, like a weird mm-hmm. mishmash of yep. hyperscreen and regular... Mercedes interior, so... The alphabet soup is getting complicated is, there. You know, is. EQE, EE, Bobbing, who knows? Well, and speaking of that, I mean, they, there was a new rumor recently that Mercedes is probably going to ditch the whole EQ branding in a few years yes. because they're not going to have the gasoline engines for that much longer, but they will have the platform to support internal combustion-powered engines. Yeah. Vehicles. One would assume that at some point EQS and S have to get merged. EQE to, and yeah. E have to get merged, but I yeah. don't know. Because the whole EQS SUV thing, like, that... that they need to figure out a way to get around that because it's like eh, yeah I don't, yeah I don't like it's that. it's odd. Uh, I mean, Honda tried it with the Honda Accord Cross Tour, and that 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 didn't go well yeah, advertising they, wise. Yeah, and they took the Accord name right out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I did not like that car. Yeah, and Weird. Legacy Outback eventually, you know, eventually right, Outback right, 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 Outback right. won over, so you never know. Right. And then if that happens, what do we just have Mercedes SUV? <laughs> Another reveal that happened this week was the refreshed Hyundai Avante, which is you know, mm-hmm. here as the Elantra. Now, we don't have too many in, more details, really. All we have are three photos, 
the front end, the back end, and one of the interior. The interior looks like it has basically received no changes. Let's but take the, a peek. But the front end... So the front end's definitely, definitely different. It kind of gives me a little bit of a Sonata meets... Mm -hmm. Meets, I'm not sure what it has. It's definitely a bit more catfish than before. Well, I like it because I actually prefer the fact that they've split the front or the top of the grill from the lower mm. fascia part. It does mm. break it up a little bit nicer in my in my eye. It does look like we also have somewhat of a horizontal light bar. They're not as uh, pronounced mm -hmm. as you see on those European products like the Staria and the Grandeur. However, the Refresh Sonata coming soon will definitely have that light yep. bar. The new Kona has that light bar. This doesn't look definitely like Definitely is the new theme. It's yeah. the new Hyundai thing, so you're going to see that everywhere. But it doesn't look like this is that 100% that same thing. It looks like that middle section might be illuminated, but not as brightly as the Yeah, it's really difficult to tell there. Inside. And what does that rear end look like? Let's the, see that. The rear end has much... Yeah, less going much on. less of yeah. The lower still has bumper, that karate chop thing yeah, which in the I middle. Mind. I don't. I don't mind that. It's the lower fascia that's changed. It's all this black and mm -hmm. um, so these sort of fake diffusers going on here and there. And you know, they didn't really need to change much back there in my eyes. So that, that's all yeah. good. Black mm -hmm. accents are in vogue. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. We've got new wheel designs. Other than that, doesn't look like much else is very different. So yeah. Now the interior again doesn't also look like it's changed much. Nope, uh, not, no major changes. There's no. It was just one angle that we're given, but from what you can tell, it looks exactly like the current one. Which is fine because it's not not terribly old. I'm actually surprised no. that we have an exterior refresh so this soon after it's launched. It's it's pretty uh, pretty drastic it's there. Been two years. It was yeah. in 2021. Um, so. And I think that it still compete, competes very well with Corolla and with Civic, which are the two big players in the segment. Um, Civic, its redesign is kind of boring. Oh, I. Um, yeah. And the can the Corolla. I mean, it's getting a little old, and it feels a little bit um, bargain basement. Let's be kind there. But the other thing to remember is there's the Kia Forte, which it feels mm -hmm. even older to me because it came out before Elantra, and I think its interior and its design is kind of previous generation Kia, like mm -hmm. Stinger era Kia. Where you know Stinger was a great looking car, but you get inside one, yeah. compared to current yeah. like Sportage interior. Forte is definitely 40s. mini, mini cheap, mini cheap stinger. Exactly. So yeah. it's feeling to me a lot older than Elantra does. I wonder if they're going to keep it around because we just got the refresh. They didn't mm. rename it. Yeah, K3 good question. Like they did with the Optima. Uh, in 2021, it sold over 100,000 units. So actually, that's mm -hmm. that's pretty good performance for uh, for the uh, the Forte. 2022, you know, production shortages. I don't know. What we can say there, what ninety-seven thousand, but still, actually, that is one of the best years ever for the Forte brand in in the U.S. So, I would assume it must live on. Uh, what will it look like? That is a different question. Exactly, and there's not currently a hybrid one offered here, so I'm assuming if we do get another one, they gotta hybridize it at some level. You'd assume because the Elantra does get the hybrid, we so the yeah, it's a good hybrid. unanswered questions. A lot of unanswered questions. Also happening this last week, I was finally able to spend some time with Volvo's new EX90, uh, which is not to be confused with the XC90. This is a it's not a 1990s car. It is definitely Volvo's vision of the 21st century. So this is going to be their first complete all-electric vehicle. So mm -hmm. uh, it's not adapted from a gasoline vehicle at all like C40 is. They call C40 the first all-electric model. It's not because it's based on an XC40. Um, this one has the flat floor plan that you expect in an EV, the big battery, etc. It's the new design. It's over 110 kilowatt hours in capacity. They're saying it'll be 300 miles of range base in the United States, dual motor, over 400 horsepower will be standard, over 500 horsepower will be optional, uh, and it's going to be three rows with seven seats. Nice. For and under 80,000. 
Did I say that? Right, but they haven't released full pricing yet, right? No full pricing, just quote-unquote well-equipped under $80,000. So 799999 <laughs> It will be built in the United States, so it will qualify for some portion of the federal tax credit. How much of it, we don't know, because we don't know where the battery is coming from yet. But it should qualify for at least half of the federal tax credit. And if you lease it, it should qualify for the full tax credit uh, until those rules probably get changed at some point. But isn't that a new development? That was something that, that just is came recent. Out? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Recent, recent yeah, guidance. Recent EV, you can actually get the full credit. Yeah, recent IRS guidance. So that has definitely changed the picture for a large number of EVs out there. So a much larger number qualify now just because of that. But only if you lease, not if right. you buy. Um, I'm really intrigued to see how this goes with Volvo. I'm also intrigued that they are announcing the EX90 so far in advance of its sales because it will be more than a year before you will actually be able to drive one in the United States. We should probably diverge into Ram Revolution now because it is much less of a revolution than we all thought because it is basically an electric ram truck it's an it's an it's a 1500 with the revolution concepts front grille yes and that's really i wouldn't have much problem with it if it weren't the fact that we were at the chicago auto show given a given the chance to walk around that concept we were told expect a lot of what you see to change but a lot of what you see here will really be part of that production model and then the next day or two days later for the super bowl they say oh here it actually Here it is. is. And it's just a, yeah. literally a 1500 with the front grill. I think none of the cool features we saw in the concert. True. None of the cool features. None of the cool features. None of the features. But I will say the PR speak at the uh, at the uh, the auto show was a lot of what you see here will be incorporated into future products. A big air quotes there. They didn't say this future product. <laughs> That's true. Which also um, means... This is basically Ram Lightning. Potentially, and then potentially what we're looking at is that concept is pre previewing the next one. Could be, could be. That could be what that seems, that's what yeah. they're alluding to. And I, I hope that's the case because why waste all the money and development of that concept, mm -hmm. which had some really cool things going on, like that third row jump seat, the full pa uh, pass-through from the front to the bed um, for long items, like none of those things. The, the cool dashboard, nothing mm -hmm. from that concept made it to this production vehicle. So I have to believe that it's alluding to a future product after this one. It this was a rushed be. one. It could be, yeah. I mean... It's, it, it's 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 actually much more of a, a comprehensive engineering challenge than I had expected because they have decided to do a full body on frame electrified frame. Mm -hmm. So this does not use the regular Ram 1500 underpinnings. It uses the regular Ram 1500 bed and cab, different front end and completely different frame, which is actually one of the more expensive components as far as design goes. So this is going to be the same frame that's going to be used in the upcoming electric SUVs, mm -hmm. um, most likely some form of electrified Wagoneer. Uh, and when we see that, we don't know. Um, but the process ends up being much like the Lightning development process, where the Lightning has a completely unique frame, motors, and everything else going on under there, and then they just stuck the regular cab on top. Uh, it does mean that it would be theoretically easy to adapt to anything that, that the group sells with a body-on-frame design. So, again, you know, Wagoneer kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely will leave some people disappointed by the, uh, the lack of, uh, you know, earth-shattering yeah. earth changes. Which, to be honest, I never really expected. I was intrigued, but I never thought the third row was going to make it. It was just too tiny and useless. Um, I was really hoping for that front pass-through, because that would have yeah. been bonkers cool. And it would have been an innovative thing, but that, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. 
I, there are people out there that are happy that it's not all concepty like that because most people who buy trucks really just want a trucky truck. So the fact that it's still the Ram 1500, you know, underneath it all, or at least visually, I think pe- a lot of people are still going to like that about it. But mm-hmm. the people who wanted the edgier Silverado EV style truck, this is not that at all. Yeah, it is a tricky, tricky thing too, because you know it's it's not going to be a unibody truck. It's going to be a body on frame truck. So if you're worried about that durability, the you want the frame, etc., for for especially fleet buyers that don't drive a lot of miles, but they want the the cheap uh, electricity, they want the uh, the lower servicing costs of driving an electric vehicle like that for their crew. It's going to mean that all of your regular Ram 1500 bed things, your your toolboxes, your shells, your whatever, your uh, lumber racks, all of that is going to bolt right on uh, to the Ram electric truck. And that's probably the biggest deal here because a huge percentage of Lightnings are actually going to corporate fleet buyers um, for that exact reason, which is why they have that really base discount model uh, with and without the big battery pack. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the exact same game uh, from the Ram side of things. And then the other twist, of course, is that it's going to have that range extending device on it. Now, exactly what that's going to look like, we don't know because yeah, the people over at Stellantis keep, uh, you know, going right up to the table and saying, yep, don't worry, it's coming. And then some, well, you know, hang on, we, we don't, we're first step at a time, we're going to have a battery electric one first. So what that looks like, what kind of plug-in hybrid it ends up being, we don't know yet, but definitely expect one at some point. Did you know that a few weeks ago we started an internet war? Yes. I always wanted to have one, and I always wanted it to be very dramatic, and this turned out not to be a drama-filled one. It could have um, been. Could have been. Could have been. Turned out to be a nothing burger. But at any rate, we will hype it up anyway. So uh, we had a video out on the EV Buyer's Guide channel where I talk about a electrified future and a logical process forward if we as a society, the, the communal we, could somehow come together, it was more of a thought experiment, I guess you could say. Um, if we as a global world, if I could somehow become dictator for the world, like a sort of Wrath of Khan kind of, you know, Khan kind of dictator, um, then we could move everything to hybrids first, move everything to plug-in hybrids, move everything to EVs. Um, and there were a few I think misconceptions about this video. The timing somehow led people to believe that this was a defense of Toyota and their particular movement on electrification or lack of movement, some could say. And my first comment there is absolutely not because if Toyota actually believed in what they say on that front, then everything they make would be a, a hybrid by now. And we wouldn't have a Sequoia and a Tundra with terrible gas mileage that, you know, we do. So that's the world we live in. Um, but it also was not meant to be a personal thing like, you know, you, the viewer, you, the purchaser, should not buy that EV, etc. So uh, our friends over at Transport Evolved, I think, got the wrong end of the stick there initially uh, and put out a video about it, uh, about, you know, these things are wrong, these points are wrong, etc. And they name-dropped, um, too. They did, they name-dropped. Uh, and so, you know, uh, they actually responded to some of the comments and viewer comments, so thanks for viewers that stuck up for us and defended uh, Uh, And so we had a lovely chat about the future of electrification. You can see that over there on their channel. Um, But yeah, I think we all came to the same conclusion that, you know, we aren't uh, aren't anti-EV at all. But if we had a logical progression for electrification in the United States uh, or, you know, uh, emissions reduction, whatever you want to call this thing, um, everybody should be driving full hybrids. We could be doing it now. Like literally all 15 million cars that are expected to be sold over the next 12 months uh, in North America could be hybrid today and we could all be getting 
10, 15% better fuel economy. Um, you know, just some of the commenters out there, I realize that not all hybrids are made equal. The Honda hybrids don't achieve their lofty hybrid goals in real world driving. Obviously, plug-in hybrids from the Jeep lineup sometimes fail to meet their numbers as well, but they're still better than the comparably performing non-hybrid out there. So uh, there really is no hybrid that I can think of that is a step in the wrong direction. All the hybrids have at least some benefit, and they're still going to mean lower expenses at the gas pump. Less gasoline usage means less importing gasoline, etc., from other places, less importing oil. Um, so depending on what whatever your particular reason for wanting to cut your consumption is, I think everybody should be on board with reduction. Um, you know, that's that's not a world we live in. We can't all, you know, come together in a kumbaya moment this way. So uh, the result is just, you know, you do you. That's, that's the bottom line there. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about what's coming up next, what you should expect to see on the various channels. We have a whole lot coming up. Obviously, we have the Lexus RZ drive the new Subaru Crosstrek, the new Hummer SUV, the Dodge Hornet, and the Dodge Hornet plug-in hybrid, the all-wheel drive version of the Nissan Aria. We're finally going to be driving that. Hopefully performance is better uh, than the front-wheel drive version. The new GV70 EV is also on offer there. Um, That basically is a combination of the rear-wheel drive platform from the GV70 and the electrified eGMP platform bits and bobs just jammed under the hood. So eGMP batteries, motors, chargers, etc., jammed under the skin there. I'm really intrigued because the Hyundai Kia Group is not only going gangbusters with EV rollouts, their production has been ramping up super hard. Um, Genesis is now having three electric vehicles in their lineup, which puts them ahead of the vast majority of other companies out there, uh, including Lexus, and actually at the moment ahead of Volvo, which really came out first in their electrified uh, strategy there. Um, Volvo plans on having three full EVs, but that third one not on sale for another year. Uh, Then we're going to be driving the new Ionic 6, the next EV from the bunch. We're going to be seeing the Kia EV9 in person at the New York Auto Show. So if you're in or near New York City and you want to see it in person, it's going to be there. We're going to have the Prius Prime and the Corolla Cross Hybrid. Drives back down here in San Diego again. Same event. Uh, Then the Subaru Impreza. We're going to be driving that. And the Mazda CX-90 plug-in hybrid and regular CX-90. Um, and then we are going to take a little bit of a break and then see the Chevy Trax and GMC Canyon. I have to say, I am really intrigued by that CX-90. I, I am too, because I, I think this is a, a big, especially with the powertrains. You've got inline six turbo engine, 3.3, over 300 horsepower. Um, the base engine, the base tune of it is not over 300 horsepower, mm-hmm. but it is still an interesting mm-hmm. option in that segment. And then there's also the plug-in hybrid version. So you're actually getting some pretty interesting powertrain choices there. And you have the really, really nice Mazda interiors, which of course they've been trying to go up market. And so far, I think they're doing a really good job. But what I've seen of the CX-90, I have not yet seen it in person. You have, but mm-hmm. it seems like a very, very nice place to be inside. Kind of Volvo-like in some ways. Yeah. So I'm curious There's to see. There's definitely a Volvo parallel, I think, yeah, I think in the style. I'm curious to see how it drives. Um, if you want to you know, get a glimpse of that in a smaller package, you can read some of the reviews of the CX-60 over in Europe. The reviews of that plug-in hybrid have come out already, so if you want to get sort of mm-hmm. a, a teaser of what to expect the CX-90, that should be a way to do that. We don't know anything about how the inline six drives yet because yeah, no one that's new. Uh, I'm intrigued by the pricing too because I expected it to be a lot more expensive, mm-hmm. um, and it turns out that 
Mazda's actually been quite aggressive on pricing. I assumed that the top end model, especially with the interior and their, their self-stated mission to move the brand up market, I assumed it would hit more like 75, 80,000, and it's gonna be under $70,000 for the plug-in hybrid well-equipped. And this is gonna be one of the very few three-row things with the plug, the only plug-in hybrid that seats eight, as I recall. Now, you didn't get to see one of those in person, but you did see one with the seven seat configuration with the two seats in the third row. But that means the it's eight seat is going to have to have a, a middle seat. Yeah, back there. it's a little tight. A little they tight. did actually have a one model with the third with the extra seat in the third row. I did not get a chance oh, to sit did. in that one um, because it was very, very busy. So I saw it um, and it is definitely a squeeze. But honestly anything with eight seats is a squeeze let's be super honest on that one if you want eight seats not a squeeze you're going to want a minivan um outside that this is uh, an intriguing option and again the only thing with a plug that seats eight at the moment um there is no ev on sale at the moment no plug-in hybrid outside of this everything else is either six or seven seats so Mm -hmm. definitely uh an interesting sales proposition there from mazda Um, And the value proposition, I think, is strong. The question is, is the shopper going to be interested? Because it has not grown inside at all. So is the addition of a plug, the inline six, the rear-wheel drive driving dynamics, is that enough to take the CX-9 from dead last to somewhere else in that segment in terms of sales? I don't know, because so far, even though, you know, I think they're doing a great job of trying to make make their interiors nicer, make the the Mm -hmm. cars more comfortable, um, give them that more premium feel, but the majority of people don't seem to know that they're doing it. The yeah. People still think Mazda is zoom zoom, that they're cheap and cheerful, fun to drive cars, but they're not, you know, Audi competitors or Volvo competitors, which they're not yet, but they're trying to be closer mm-hmm. to that. I don't know if the general public is prepared for something like yeah. that. Yeah. But the CX-9 sales have always perplexed me. I don't think CX-9 should sell like a Highlander, mm-hmm. but it also should not be dead last in the segment. There are a lot of good reasons to buy a CX-9. It's fun to drive. It's relatively fuel efficient. It handles well. Um, it has very child seat friendly second row seats. The cargo area is acceptable. I think it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the look of Mazda's modern products is great. Some folks have said that they think the CX-90 is not as attractive as the CX-9. I would be in that camp. Um, yeah. The rear end is definitely a little bit rounder than I thought it would be, yeah. but the front is definitely very, very attractive still. Yeah. The, the nose, the grill, that that whole look there, yeah. I think they've done a great job on. But there's that question of why does not, uh, why don't more people consider the CX-9 or drive it? And some of the feedback we received last time we asked this question in video form on the on the YouTube channel um, was, well, you know, it's too small on the inside, so I bought a Highlander instead. And it's like, it's the same size inside as a Highlander. Um, literally the same cargo area space, the same number of legroom inches, the same amount of headroom, etc. It is bigger on the outside because of that long hood profile. That's what gives it that presence, that that attractive look. But to anyone that thinks it's small and then goes and buys something the same size or smaller, like, oh my goodness, it's it's the same size. Um, now, if you want a Chevy Traverse, it's not that big inside. Um, you know, it's not minivan sized. It's, it's not the class new Grand leading. Highlander, no, Highlander either. That that third row. That third row is big. It's bigger. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, I think a lot of people would do well to give the CX ninety a good solid look, especially if you're looking at a Buick, mm-hmm. uh, or you're looking at a Lincoln or a Cadillac XT six. I would buy the CX ninety over most of those. Aviator, that's a tricky question. Aviator's a lot of fun. 
Um, but what's weird and interesting now is Aviator's rear wheel drive, so is CX90. So you no longer have that whole like, well, you know, but you're getting the front wheel drive one. Yeah. This is a solid, interesting, intriguing option um, that, you know, some BMW shoppers I could even see might, I mean, not cross shop, let's be honest, this is not a BMW competitor, but might go, you know what? I like the look, it's a lot less expensive, maybe I'll give it a whirl. And I didn't even think about Aviator. I think the Aviator is actually probably the closest goal competitor for them. In terms of, you've got the plug-in hybrid yeah. version of the Aviator, it has way more power than the CX-90 plug-in mm-hmm. hybrid, but you also have a twin-turbo V6 in the regular um, Aviators. We have a twin-turbo inline-six in the CX-90, so there are some parallels, and I feel like interior-wise, the CX-90 is probably not far off, if not a little bit better than the Actually, Aviator. yeah, I like the interiors of the CX-90. I don't like the infotainment software as much, but the interior design and the interior parts quality, I think, is better than Aviator. Mm-hmm. Some of the features are not quite there in the CX-90, which I think explains some of its price tag. Like, you won't find um, the same level of gadgets and gizmos and gee whiz things. Um, and no 30-way info- power seats. No 30-way <laughs> power seats. Um, but, you know, that's okay, because my left leg and my right leg are the same length. Yeah. So, for me, it's fine. Um, if you didn't know the inside joke there, Lincoln has these seats where you can actually adjust the length of the seat bottom cushion independently for your left and right leg. I mean, if, you, uh, if you're if you an amputee, this is probably a fantastic feature for you. Um, for most of the population, it is probably oh. not not a big deal. Um, but I do like the, the, the interior parts quality there. It, not that Lincoln's software is fantastic because the Ford Sync software kind of needs some work too. But the Mazda software is a little convoluted. The controller knob is kind of a pain, and you cannot use the touchscreen when the vehicle's in motion, which is a bummer. Um, all those things are kind of a little bit clunky with it. The screen is big. Hopefully, Mazda updates the software at some point. Um, but the instrument cluster looks great, and the the look is fantastic. I think. And the instrument cluster in the Mazda is way better than any Lexus instrument cluster. That's for sure. That's true. <laughs> we just spent our day in the Lexus RZ, and for some reason, uh, different development cycles and different product development teams somehow mean that the Lexus RZ at sixty-seven thousand dollars top trim that we were driving today has what a seven or eight inch LCD instrument cluster, and a Rav Four Hybrid can get a twelve point three inch LCD instrument cluster. Right. Uh, don't understand it at all, especially when you know we as journalists are hopping between event and event. So we were just at an event with Toyota, and they're showing us a car that's a lot less expensive with a bigger screen, and then we get on this one, and it's got a tiny screen, and you're like, "Why? Ah, what happened?" And it's also it's just blatantly when you look at the cluster itself. There's all this real estate mm-hmm. and this design that suggests that they could have put something much bigger there, and they just didn't do it. So there's got to be some reason, but also. I'm not a fan of that decision. Just yeah. it doesn't look good compared to a lot of other things that are less expensive. So. I'm assuming that the dashboard hard points were probably designed for the bigger screen, and then maybe screen availability or other parts realities came into focus and they couldn't do it. It would be my guess, perhaps. Um, but I would I would have hoped that you would have saved the bigger screens for the luxury brand. Yeah. It is intriguing that um, Hyundai and Kia, it, for people that don't know, when, when products like cars are developed, the development cycles are very long. So however many years ago the decision was made to put big screens in all the modern Hyundai and Kia products, that was a major life-altering change for that manufacturer. And it was probably three or four years before we ever saw the vehicle that those decisions were set in motion and put firmly in place. 
And uh, even two years before we see the car is usually the cutoff for really substantive changes, like which trim level gets the big screen. So those manufacturers really took a big risk that that parts prices and availability would go in the right direction for those big screens. And I think that the other companies, like especially Honda, just took a more measured approach and they were like, well, we'll see how this goes. And then they ended up getting caught a little left out. So, uh, you know, we see fairly small screens in the Pilot and the HRV and the CRV, uh, especially compared to now the RAV4 uh, hybrid with its bigger screen. But not the Accord. Sorry. Not the Accord, yeah. But the Accord's a smaller volume, and it's it's the top-end models the that top, get yeah. they get the big, big ones with the fun software. Well, no, no, because remember, some of these lower ones get the big screen, just not the software. Yeah. You can get the big screen on, like, EX. The, right? uh, the Just the infotainment, not, not, right, the, not, LCD the, cluster, not the LCD cluster. Yeah. Not the LCD Instrument cluster, cluster yeah. and not the Google software. Yeah, it's kind of a convoluted lineup there. Yeah, yeah. And the Google software, I, it's a welcome addition, but I would mm-hmm. like to see it available on more than just the top, most expensive trim, but yeah. maybe that'll change... Probably will over time. I would assume that that should be an easy thing to upgrade. And maybe we'll see that same Google integration coming to Pilot with its smaller screen at some point in time. Um, that would also be a welcome change. Or Honda could just please give us a bigger screen for the Pilot, which it deserves because it's a big vehicle. <laughs> it just looks so out of place in that car. It does screen. look oddly small, I would agree, on, on the Pilot. Uh, especially when there are big competitors that are now selling, uh, sales rivaling uh, the pilot uh, at the sales chart, and that's that's definitely one of those hotly requested features. I mean, last year there were a few months here and there where Telluride actually beat Pilot at the sales game uh, in the United States, and that was a mind-blowing thing for a lot of folks out there. It's nowhere near uh, the sales of, of Highlander, but you know Highlander's got the bigger screens too. Yeah, yeah, actually, really big screens, screens, really big screens in the Highlander. That 14-inch screen is huge. Um, and then, of course, if you Grand Cherokee, Grand Cherokee sales numbers are also through the roof. You can get tons of screens in there. It's not yeah. just the one screen. It's the screens everywhere. Well, we should probably end this episode here, but we will see all of you next week uh, with or without Tim. We'll have to see how the schedules go. So hopefully we'll be able to all get together. Maybe the three of us will do a three-way live show at some point in the future. So uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Find us on all the other YouTube channels. And uh, where else can they find us, Brian? They can find us on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Well, Instagram is more like your personal account, but if you want to follow Alex, he's definitely on there. Oh dear, yes, the Instagram. Anyway, that's something for a future episode. See all of you later.